Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. Two verses that we'll look at tonight, and then we'll kind of pick up the pace uh, considerably from where we've been. But um, tonight I just want to look at verses 1 and 2 and look at one particular aspect of what the Bible has to say about the last days or end times and its relationship to Revelation. John writes by the Holy Spirit, After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And chapters 4 and 5 go on to speak about that heavenly scene that we are uh, headed to. But before we head into uh, that portion of Revelation and then that section of the Revelation that has to do with uh, the Great Tribulation period, which is chapters uh, 6 through 19 in the book of Revelation, I want to deal with the subject of the rapture of the church and what the Bible teaches about it so that you'll know where I'm coming from as we begin to head into uh, all of these other chapters and understand why I believe what I believe uh, related to the rapture, why I teach it the way uh, that I teach it and how I see the scriptures uh, and why understand why I believe that the church, that is Christians, will not go through the great tribulation but instead that we will be raptured out of the world prior uh, to that judgment. There are three principal views that uh, Christians take related to the rapture of the church in terms of its timing. There are some Christians who believe that uh, Christians will go through the Great Tribulation period, uh, that the rapture will take place at the end of the Great Tribulation, uh, immediately before, uh, somewhere close to that, uh, immediately before the uh, second coming of Jesus Christ. And this is known as the post-tribulation rapture view. There are others who believe that Christians will go through the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, that they will be raptured at the midway point of those seven years and, uh, and uh, not incurring uh, the greatest uh, wrath of the great tribulation that is poured out in the second uh, three and a half years of that seven years. And this is known as the mid-tribulation rapture view. And then there are those of us who believe that the Bible teaches that Christians are going to be removed uh, altogether uh, by virtue of the rapture prior to the seven-year tribulation uh, period. And uh, that view is known as a pre uh, pre-tribulation rapture view. And I am thoroughly a pre-tribulation rapture guy. I say it without apology, but just uh, for clarity, as I heard one speaker say many, many years ago at a conference uh, speaking on end times, he said, uh, I am uh, so pre-trib, he said, I don't even eat post-toasties. And, uh, and I, I understand those uh, sentiments exactly. Now, don't misunderstand me. Um, I respect people's rights to hold other uh, views. And uh, that's, that's the Holy Spirit's uh, deal that he has to bring people to where he's going to bring them to related to all of these things. I am a pre-tribulation rapture guy based upon what I think are very, very solid biblical reasons that I hope to uh, bring out a little bit later in the sermon. Now, when we talk about this a little bit, uh, we'll head into some, uh, it, uh, hopefully not too technical, but it is a relatively technical study that we'll be looking at tonight. And sometimes it's good just to brace for that uh, a, a little bit. On, on things. And so I try to simplify it, try to, you know, make it easy to understand. But if you get, you're new to the Bible, new to the, what the Bible says about end times, and you get a little bit lost, uh, just relax related to that. Pick up what you can, and you'll continue to grow in all of this as, as we wait for the Lord to return. Now, remember in chapter 1 of uh, Revelation, the Holy Spirit in verse 19 has already given us the key to understanding uh, the revelation. In chapter 1, verse 19, if you turn to it, he spoke to John, Jesus did, and said, write the things, and there's three things. Number one, which you have seen, 
and number two, the things which are, and number three, the things which will take place after this. And the words after this are metatauta uh, in the Greek. And so this is the key to understanding the entire book. God gives us the bird's eye view of it. It is a broken into three parts according to Jesus. What John has just seen, uh, what he is in the middle of uh, presently, and then what comes uh, after that. And gives us the big picture before you start to get into the, to the details. So the things which you have seen, uh, what had John just seen all of the events of Revelation chapter 1. The vision of Jesus there. The things which are, Jesus speaks of, and this refers to the time in which John was living, and incidentally we're living in too. It's known as the church age, as he speaks about the church age in the context of, of the seven churches of Revelation. And that uh, constitutes that time in human history that spans from the birth of the church following Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection, all the way uh, until the rapture of the church before the tribulation period. The church age is again encapsulated uh, in Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches recorded in verses 2 and 3. Then Jesus said, record the things which will take place after this, after this metatauta. The first two words of uh, of chapter 4 after these things are the words metatauta and so he begins uh, this uh, very uh, part of the section of the book with the very words that he said would constitute the third section so it gives a, it signals to us that we're now entering into the third division of that book now chapter Chapters 4 through 19, they describe uh, the tribulation period, the seven-year period in which God is going to pour his judgment out upon a world that has rejected him, rejected his son, and uh, in the form of seven seals and seven trumpets and seven uh, bowls. In chapters 4 and 5, he gives us the, the scene that is going on in heaven prior to the breaking of those seals and the unleashing of the judgment beginning in chapter 6 we begin to get an insight into what it is that is happening then on the earth as a result of, of all of that. Chapters 20 through 22 of Revelation, they deal with Jesus' second coming, the kingdom that he establishes on the earth known as the Millennial Kingdom, the great white throne judgment, and then the eternal uh, state and, and creation. The Bible teaches that there is a great tribulation that is coming upon this world. Jesus speaks about it in Matthew chapter 24, verses 21 and 22, where he said, And there shall be great tribulation, such as not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, during this period, uh, nobody in their right mind, uh, nobody who has an option of not being here will want to be there during the great tribulation. Today, the world can barely handle what is happening um, as a result of just uh, natural disasters. Uh, then you uh, mix in, you know, the depravity of man. The terrorism that goes on in the world, the wars, the dictators, the people that are being uh, slaughtered without number all, all over the face of, of the world. And then you bring in the whole demonic element of, of what is happening in, in this world. The world is in sorry enough shape even as it relates to those three things. But the Great Tribulation is unique because then piled upon those things is the judgment of God added to it during that tribulation period. It'll be a time when God pours out His wrath upon the world. And he will be pouring his wrath out upon those who have, uh, the, where the world's population is made up completely of those that have rejected him, rejected his son, uh, rejected the Savior and the Christ that he promised. This time is spoken of as a time of God's wrath in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. And it's an important verse for our discussion tonight. 
Paul wrote and said, For God did not appoint us, that is Christians, to wrath, that is God's wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, For you know the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and in Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned from God to idols to serve the living and the true God. And to wait for his son, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And it's talking about God's wrath. Uh, speaking of the great tribulation, uh, in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, following the breaking of the first six seals, uh, of the seven seals in Revelation, we're told in the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus being the Lamb. So this is the wrath of God for the day, great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. Now, how, how, what do you got to do to make a, a lamb angry? And yet, and yet that's what the world has done. The most passive is, is, as can be. And yet they've done it. The world will do it. In the original language of, of the New Testament, which is, is Greek, in each of those three verses, the word that is used for our English word wrath is the Greek word orge, O-R-G-E. Now, in the English language, when we talk about anger and we talk about wrath, we use them interchangeably. Uh, sometimes we will use the one as kind of a strengthened version of the other. We'll say, well, this person was angry. And then if they were really angry, we'll say they were filled with wrath. And so the one word is just kind of, uh, of a, a stronger uh, use of, of, of the other. But that's not how it's used in, in the Bible. The word anger, as it's translated very often in, in the Bible, the New Testament, is the word thumos. And it refers to explosive anger. Uh, I know none of you know anything about that. But it refers to uh, when a person becomes agitated very quickly, they blow up over something. It happens in a moment or 30 seconds. They rant, they rave, they yell, they do whatever. And then, whew, just as quickly, the thing is over. And that's thumos. That's an explosive. We call that person uh, a hot-headed person or a hot-tempered person. That is not the word that is used in those verses to speak of God's wrath. The word that is used is the word orge, and it refers to something that has built up in a person's mind and in a person's heart over a long period of time. Orge builds a lot longer than Thumos does. Orge expresses itself for a much longer time than Thumos does. And because it's been... Uh, and, and Orge is never ever satisfied with just this quick flash. It will stay filled with wrath uh, long enough to do what needs to be done to end the wrongdoing or, or the flashpoint. There's no hot-headedness in, in Orge at, at all. And that's the word that's used in these verses. Now the Bible teaches that the Lord watches this world. He watches every square inch of this world. Now, there are no secrets in the world from, from Him. And He not only watches the world, but the Bible teaches that He ponders what it is that He does watch. He comes to conclusions about what it is that He is seeing on the face of the earth. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 21. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders man's paths. The word ponder means to observe. It means to weigh mentally. And he watches, and he watches, and he watches, and he observes, and he weighs, and nothing in the whole world, not for one nanosecond, escapes his attention. And I, I kind of view it in my mind where he, he just sits there and watches. He's got a finger over his mouth, so to speak, and, hmm, you know, he's just pondering 
all of it. Can you imagine what God sees on a given day on planet Earth? Can you imagine what he sees? As he sees someone over here strapping on a vest to blow up people at a bus stop. He sees all of the prostitution. He sees all of the oppression of workers around the world. He sees all of the starvation. I mean, he sees all of it. He sees every single sin that's committed in the world. Every single day he watches it and, and he sees it. He sees the wickedness. He sees the rebellion against him, the blasphemy against him, the, the sin, the victims that the sin produces, the money that is made off of sin in the United States of America alone. He watches the persecution of his people all over the world. And to be a perfectly holy God, pondering the ways of sinful man, is going to produce something in you. It's going to produce an emotion in you. And what it is going to produce in you, if you are righteous at all, is a righteous indignation. It is going to produce a wrath. And one day the Bible teaches God will rise up and he will pour his wrath out on this world. And it is a wrath that will have built for a long period of time and he will pour it out against the sin and the pride and the rebellion of man that's been building for thousands of years. Now when God watches the world and he ponders it, it appears that he's watching it for something specific, some specific event in human history that he is, is watching for. And I think the Apostle Paul tells us what that something is in his epistle to the Romans. And it's called the fullness of the Gentiles. He said in Romans 11:25, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that hardening in heart has occur happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's going to come a point in time in human history where the last person... The last Gentile who is going to be saved and God knows is going to be saved prior to the rapture of the church is going to occur. And when that last person is saved, then this great tribulation will unfold. And so help me, if you're in here tonight and you're that last Gentile and you're holding up the boat, uh, we'll thump you after the circuit. Wait a second, I'm getting a name right now. Hold on. The, what's the row, Lord? Okay, seven. Okay. And then he'll rise up and he'll pour his judgment out upon the earth. And, and when he does that and judges this earth, he will at the same time finish something that he started long ago with the Jewish people. He will finish the 70th 7 of Daniel chapter 9. Now when God pours out his wrath... Uh, it's not something that's ugly or, uh, you know, regretful or sinful, like, uh, it, you know, wrath looks so often in, in a sinful uh, human being. God's judgment is absolutely just and right when he meets it out. It is never, it, he never makes a mistake. It's never disproportionate. It is always exactly right for the situation. And when we read chapters 6 through 19, you say, wow! It, it, it is not too much. It is not excessive in terms of, of what, what it, the history of the world and the world deserves at that moment. And, and I'm no better than anybody else in the world. I just hap happen to have a great Savior who has delivered me out of that. Everybody can have a great Savior to deliver us out of it. But that what happens in the revelation, in, in the great tribulation, none of it is excessive at all from the vantage point of, of heaven. His judgment is always perfectly right. When justice comes into contact with unrighteousness, that justice is forced to express itself in judgment. It happens every day in the courtrooms of the United States of America. Anywhere that there is law and order that prevails within a country. Someone lives a life of crime 
or rebellion against society. Their life ultimately comes into contact with the just laws of the land. And what comes forth? Judgment. Justice comes forth. And so it is uh, with the world. Overall, mankind is living a life of crime against God. A life of rebellion against God, against His laws, against His ways. And one day He's going to judge it. One day He's going to bring it to an end. We think this is ours. We think this whole world is ours to do whatever we want with. To blaspheme Him, ignore Him, set this up and do this and, 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 and move it further and further away from Him. And, and heaven is, is outside of the insane asylum that planet Earth is and never forgets this is His. This belongs to Him. We were put here to live the life that He has called us, us to. And, and so he, when He judges it one day, he will be absolutely righteous in doing so. In fact, he would not be holy and he would not be loving if, if he did not judge it. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. When God pours out his justice and judgment and wrath upon this world, heaven will sing, righteous and true are your judgments. They will see that it is a righteous thing to do and that it is perfectly proportionate to the sin that is occurring upon the earth. Now, because God is long-suffering, he's very, very patient related to his wrath. He's not willing that anyone should perish. He wants everyone to come to, to repentance. And one of the things that people have to be careful of, if you don't know the Lord tonight, you need to be careful of this. One of the things that people mistake God's patience for and his long-suffering for is weakness on his part or that he lacks the will to judge in this way and to bring an end to sin. He doesn't lack the will. He doesn't lack the strength to do it. He will do it. Paul, Peter wrote in 2 Peter verse three, chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. I'll just read a couple of the verses. He said, knowing this first that scoffers will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were uh, from the beginning of creation. God's not going to judge this. He's not going to do that. He doesn't have the will to do it. You talk about it. It's never going to happen. And then Peter goes on to write, and he said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some count slackness but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. The reason that he has not poured his judgment out on the earth yet is not because it has not, does not deserve it. It is because he is giving more space for more people to turn and to repent and come to him. I'm glad that all of this didn't happen before 1980. <laughs> When I got myself, you know, uh, in the good hands, people, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On all. But he was patient to wait, and I was glad for that. He's patient to wait tonight if you don't know the Lord. And uh, maybe you can knock everything out for us by getting saved and getting us out of here uh, tonight. So you can read this great, uh, of this great tribulation, this expression of God's wrath in uh, chapters uh, 6 through 19 in the book uh, of, of Revelation. You don't want to be there. Nobody needs to be there when that wrath is poured out. Now, the Bible also teaches that believers or Christians are going to be raptured from the earth prior to the great tribulation. If you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, I'd like to read a passage there and talk about a couple of things there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. Paul says, But I do not want you ignorant, brethren, 413, 
concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus or have died. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, rapture the church, will by no means precede those who are asleep. And he describes this rapture. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be, and then you can circle the next two words, uh, caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What Paul is addressing overall, he's writing to Christians there, and uh, he had taught them that Jesus was going to return, going to rapture them in, into heaven. But in the meantime, uh, some Christians had begun to die. And uh, the loved ones and friends and family of these Christians that had died, they had a question. And that they, they thought, well, we're going to get raptured out of here before anyone dies. Now people are dying. What happens to these people that have now died before the rapture of the church? And so they're curious uh, about this. Are they all right? We're going to see them again? You know, what happens to them when Jesus does come? And so uh, Paul answers their questions here in this, in this section about their loved ones that, that have died. And then at the same time, he gives us a very valuable instruction uh, regarding the rapture of the church. Now, what is the rapture of the church? Verse 16, we're told that the Lord himself will descend from heaven. He's going to descend from heaven. Now, this wasn't new to anyone uh, in, the, in the church. Jesus had spoken about uh, all of this. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, speaking of heaven, I will come again and receive you to myself bring us up to be with him that where I am there you may be also Jesus currently is seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father he will rise up at a moment in time and will descend from heaven that's what we will see at the rapture of, of the church in verse 16 it tells us what we're going to hear he's going to descend with a shout he's going to shout something I don't know what he's going to shout nobody knows what he's going to shout probably something like let's get you out of here or something uh, like that and we're eager for that to happen it might even be what John heard uh, there in, in uh, uh, chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 where he is told uh, come up here and that might be the best bet for we don't bet though but it might be the best kind of idea related to what we will hear come up here and then to be to be raptured notice that there's also an added communication of an archangel put into the mix uh, a little bit of the trumpet of God and trumpets as they're used in the Old Testament they were used for times of festivity and uh, times of, of triumph. And so everything that's being described here in terms of Old Testament uh, imagery points to a tremendous excitement uh, related to this event. We look at ourselves and we say, we're very excited about this event. We'll be pretty pumped in the middle of all of, uh, of this. But it's very exciting for Jesus too. It's very exciting from the vantage point of heaven. Heaven is looking forward to the day of the rapture too. He is the groom. We are the bride. And as much as the bride wants to be with the groom, the groom wants to be with the bride. Jesus is excited about it. And you remember as he spoke in John chapter 17 when he was praying to the Father and he said, Father, I desire that they, speaking of us as Christians, also whom you gave me may be with me where I am and that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the earth. He longs to take us uh, into heaven to be with him. Then, and, and let's jump to we who are alive and remain, verse 17, then they will be caught up 
or raptured, literally. Uh, it's in the English, it's caught up. In, in the Latin, it's rapturo, will be raptured into the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And the word rapture is a very, very strong word. It literally means to be snatched away. Where you grab, boom, just like that. You ever watch... Well, it's a bad illustration, so I'll leave it alone. So if it can't help, I don't want to go there or anything. But it's to be grabbed a hold of and just seized with suddenness and force and to be pulled out of a situation. There's a force associated uh, with it. And so when the rapture of, of the church happens, it's going to be instantaneous. Paul speaks to the Corinthians about a twinkling of an eye. You're not going to be able to pack, uh, uh, you know, or get something else settled or anything like that. Boom! It's just the time that it takes uh, the, the light to flash off of the human eye and the whole thing is, is going to be over. We'll be seized out of this world and then to be with, with the Lord and uh, to see Him then face uh, to face. But we'll meet Him in the air. And that, that distance between the earth and, and heaven it's, itself. Now, sometimes people say, well, you know, this whole rapture schmapture. I don't quite say it like that, but in essence, in an encapsulation of two words, they say, what are you talking about rapture? I searched the whole Bible. Rapture isn't even, the word rapture isn't even in, in the Bible and all. And I looked in my Strong's Exhaustive Concordance and I couldn't find the, the word rapture because you're reading the wrong Bible. To find rapture, you've got to read the Latin Vulgate. Glory! <laughs> How many people can do that? So, rapture comes from the Latin word, which means rapturo. In the Greek, that caught away, it's harpazo. That sounds slower, doesn't it? I'm going to be harpazoed. Wow, I think you can pack. Uh, that, that sounds a little slower. Uh, uh, on, on that. Rapture! Boom! Boy, that sounds good. So maybe that's why it's stuck. I don't know why it's stuck, but but that, that's what it is in our English caught up there in, in First Thessalonians. And so the rapture of the church is when Jesus returns in the sky to catch us up to be uh, with him before the Lord pours his wrath out upon the world. Now notice in verse 17 that from that time forward we will always be with the Lord. Never be separated from him ever again ever be separated from him not one time not one moment in the rest of eternity and history and and all and notice in verse 18 that the rapture of the church is to be a comfort to us so as we see things getting worse and worse in the world more and more deserving of God's judgment and but for the grace of God we would be adding our share to it we know that he's going to take us out of here before he pours out his wrath. And as we watch uh, things getting worse and worse, we are to encourage one another to stay busy about the Lord's business and watching and waiting for his return. We don't get a terminal case of the ain't it awfuls. We, we stay busy about what God has called us uh, to do in this world. I'll never, I'll forever be indebted, at least in this life, to the assistant, one of the assistant pastors at Calvary Chapel of Napa, where, where we got going with the Lord, Karen and I. And his name was Larry Anderson. He pastors the Calvary Chapel in Phelan, California now. And uh, here I am, you know, a new Christian and everything, and prophecy and seeing so many things, you know, happening and unfolding before our eyes in the news. And I mean, and I couldn't have known in 1980 what I would be seeing today. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing the fulfillment of things before our eyes today. We never dreamed we would see this and still be here and all. But I come to church, oh my, you know, and I have a ring in my hands and everything, ah, and, and the whole deal. And uh, Larry would just always look at me, and, and uh, he's always very patient. And he said, the Lord's coming back. The Lord's coming back. And that's, that's all, all what, what was, you know, taken and wiping me out. And, oh, boy, you know, and what are the Russians doing now? And what are they, you know, this? And who's got nuclear weapon And the whole thing. And, he, and all, all of it communicated to him one thing. The Lord's coming back. And I learned a lot from that. And you, some of you who uh, attend here, uh, you know, because I share it with you uh, pretty often on that. So I want it to be a part of your life, too. And, and that, that stuck with me. God has said 
that this rapture is going to happen and it will happen. Now let me give you a, a few uh, biblical, what I think are good biblical basis for being confident in believing in a pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, when, I, when I was being uh, in my um, uh, late elementary school aged, uh, then through uh, junior high and into senior high, the church that our family uh, attended uh, pretty regularly was a Plymouth Brethren church and, uh, in Napa, California, and they believed in a pre-tribulation rapture, very, 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 very strong related to that. And then when I really committed my life to the Lord, it was uh, years later uh, in a Calvary Chapel. And Calvary Chapel believes uh, uniformly in a, in a pre-tribulation rapture, which is, is perfectly fine because I'm attending the church, I'm a deacon in the church, I'm an elder in the church, all these things. And then God threw a monkey wrench into the whole thing and he sent me over here to pastor. So if you're going to teach something, you can't say anymore, you know, go see the senior pastor. You are the senior pastor. So if they come up and say, well, why do you believe in this or why do you believe in that? You know, you can't say, well, uh, that's what the Plymouth Brethren believe. And uh, that's what Calvary Chapel believes. They'll say, well, I can see that that has taken a deep hold in you and, uh, you know, go on their way. So you've got to look at it yourself and examine it. And um, there was a dear brother... Post-tribulation rapturous is to this day, I, as far as I know, and I love him and I respect him to this day. But he came up to me and he wanted to move me from, from that position. And he gave me a particular book, and I'm not going to give you the title of it or the author of it, but it was one of the definitive uh, works in print for uh, bringing forth a post-tribulation rapture view. And I thought, well, I'll be glad to, to uh, you know, read that. I began to read it, and I mean, there wasn't enough room in the margins for me to put notes in it for you know, how it was representing the, the pre-tribulation rapture view and then how it was spiritualizing vast segments of the Word of God way beyond what I, what I could ever be comfortable with. And, uh, and, and far from that book moving me from a pre-tribulation rapture view, it made me stronger in it than, than ever. But there was that whole thing of looking and saying, okay, let's, let's sort this thing out and see if this thing is, is, is really what everyone says that it is. Uh, one reason uh, that I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture is that there isn't any mention of the church in Revelation chapters 4 through 18, which has to do, or 19, which has to do with the great tribulation. And I think it's significant that the word church is used 19 times in chapters 1, 2, and 3, once again in chapter 22, but completely absent in chapters 6 through 19 that describe the great tribulation. But someone will say, who is versed on these things, but it doesn't mention church, but it mentions saints. In chapter 13, verse 7 and verse 10, chapter 16, verse 6, chapter 17, verse 6, chapter 18, verse 24. But that simply raises the next question, and the next question is, am I killing you tonight or what? But anyway, the next question is, what kind of saints are they? Are they Old Testament saints? The Bible speaks of different kinds of saints. Old Testament saints who are looking forward in faith to the coming of the Messiah. New Testament saints or tribulation saints, which refers to people who come to know the Lord and trust in the Lord during the great tribulation after the rapture of the church. You've told them about the rapture of the church, Jesus is coming back, the need to be ready and all of this, and oh yeah, ha ha ha, and all that, and then one day, whew, we're gone. They're looking for your Bible, keep that out on the coffee table so they can find it easy, and where in the world, mark the pages, you know, get them right to where the, put tapes and CDs of how they can, you know, pile them on your Bible there so they can have some instruction. There's going to be, the Bible teaches, a group of people without number going to come to know the Lord during the Great Tribulation, even though there'll be a great deception during that period. The Bible says angelic beings are going to go all over the earth. We'll get into it in Revelation. And they're going to preach the everlasting gospel to the world in a darkness that the world has never, ever known. And people are going to respond to it. But they will be martyred for their faith. 
And when they then find themselves as saints in heaven, they will be those that have come out of the great tribulation, saved during the tribulation uh, period. It would seem to me, uh, it would seem incredible to me for the church to go through the great tribulation period and not be mentioned once in the 14 chapters that have to do with it if we're there. Number two, the great tribulation is a time when God pours his wrath out on a Christ-rejecting, rebellious world. But again, the Bible equally teaches, just as clearly teaches, that as Christians we are not appointed to wrath. And, and we've spoken about those passages. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. Even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Here's a new one. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 6, when those first six seals are broken off of the scroll and those, those sealed judgments begin to unfold and all, and everyone's hiding as we read in the rocks, the rich, the poor, the powerless, the powerful, and they're asking for the rocks to, you know, to come upon them and hide them from, uh, from the wrath of, of, of the Lamb and all. And, uh, and, but but it, it, that passage is very, very interesting in, in the light. They say, you know, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They clearly understand it to be the wrath of God. This is one of the reasons that I reject a mid-trib uh, uh, or pre-wrath rapture. Uh, because when they say, who is going to protect us from the wrath of the Lamb, it, they are talking about the six seals that have been broken including the first seal, which is the revelation of the Antichrist. The revelation of the Antichrist still represents the wrath of God, even though for the first three and a half years he'll be a man of peace while he is consolidating his power. But he still constitutes with the other seals the wrath of God. And the Bible says we're not appointed to wrath. Thus, we must be removed before the revelation of, of the Antichrist. Uh, Christ. So it is inconceivable to me that we would bear God's wrath upon us uh, because we have not rejected his son and Jesus has borne that wrath for us. And thus we need to be gone before that Revelation chapter 6 because that begins the, uh, the pouring out of, of the wrath. Now some people uh, look and say, well, uh, post-tribulation view, some of them will look at that, look at all of this and say, well, we will uh, go through the great tribulation, but we'll be uh, super saints, we'll be protected from the wrath of God while we're in it. Sometimes they'll say, I is just a big chicken looking for a way out. As a matter of fact, I am, and uh, I really am. Uh, there, there, there are things of you take just what's happening in the world today. You take what the wickedness of man, you take natural disasters, you take the demonic element of the world, and there's enough paper in this room for me to write down what, what frightens me to death as, as it relates to this world. I, 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 you know, people, well, you know, we're going to, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, this world will break you apart from, from God. I mean, it'll break you. And, and then you throw God's wrath into it. I want out. And, and uh, let me be clear about it. I want out. <laughs> and I don't care how you want to brand me uh, related to that. It is interesting that there is a group of people who are protected uh, during the Great Tribulation period, but they are uh, 144,000, 12,000 each from the 12 tribes of Israel. They are sealed and they are protected. The problem is, is that the passage goes on, and we'll be looking at it in the coming weeks, declares that these 144,000 uh, men 
are male virgin Jews. <laughs> so if you're looking forward to going through the great tribulation and you are not a male virgin Jew tonight, uh, you might want to rethink your position. You can't be sealed uh, in, in, in the middle of it. Now, that's going to be a special uh, group of, of Jewish kind of evangelists doing God's work among the Jewish people uh, during the great uh, tribulation. And so the, the post-tribulation view, everything that I've read related to it requires a spiritualizing of the 144,000, which I'm not comfortable uh, doing because at the end of the book it says, it, almost in, in knowing the, the uh, potential that, uh, for the book to be completely misunderstood by virtue of spiritualizing the passages, he says, don't add anything to this book or I'll add the plagues to you. Don't take anything away from this book, or I'm going to take your name out of the book of life. So we have to be careful with this. 144,000 male virgin Jews are 144,000 male virgin Jews. They are not the church, and they don't represent uh, the church. In fact, far from the Bible teaching that there's going to be super saints during the Great Tribulation, the Bible teaches that the Antichrist is going to overcome the saints during the Great Tribulation, and that is the Tribulation Saints. Revelation 13:7, and it was granted to him, that is the beast, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints, Tribulation Saints, and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Remember when Jesus spoke that promise to the Church of Philadelphia? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, the great church, as we, we saw and we went through those, those churches, he said, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from, from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. He could have just as easily said, I will keep you through that great hour. And both pre-trib and post-trib people believe that that great hour refers to the great tribulation. He doesn't say, I'll keep you through it. He says, I will keep you uh, from that. Number three, the purpose of the tribulation is to deal with Israel uh, supremely, uh, not, not with with the church, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from uh, today. The post-tribulation uh, view frequently confuses the program of God for Israel with the program of God for the church, and they're two entirely different things. There's a lot of doctrinal error that floats around the body of Christ today because those two things get confused and people think that the church has completely replaced Israel, that God has no further plan for the nation of Israel. But he does. Only 69 of the 77s that have to do with your people, Daniel, the Jews, took, have, have been fulfilled. There is yet another seven seven-year period that is a further dealing of God with the Jews. And, and so not to confuse uh, those, those things. Two different plans. Everyone gets saved the same way, but God is not through with the nation of Israel. Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, and he said, I say then, has God cast away his people? Speaking of the Jews, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. And, uh, and so in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, the great tribulation is spoken of as the time of McGillicuddy's trouble. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> it says the, tribe of, uh, the time of Jacob's trouble. And Jacob was one of the patriarchs of Israel. He was the father of the 12 tribes, talking about the fact that this has to do with the nation of Israel. Remember when the angel of the Lord came to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 and spoke to him about 77s being determined upon Daniel's people. And uh, when he spoke that to Daniel about his people, who were Daniel's people? The Gentiles? No, the Jews. 
The Great Tribulation is about the Jews, about Israel. Jesus uh, spoke uh, of, of the tribulation and did it in the context of unsaved Israel. Matthew chapter 24, uh, uh, verse uh, 15. And therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, where uh, whoever reads it, let him understand. Let those who are, who are in Stanislaus County flee to the mountains. That's not what he says. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the rooftop, uh, uniquely Middle Eastern, not come down and take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and with those with nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not an issue for us. We're not, you know, bound by the distance of, of the Sabbath in the New Covenant. For then there shall be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time. No, nor ever shall be. It's about Israel. It's not about us. Number four, the post-tribulation view does not allow for the teaching that the rapture is imminent, that it could happen at any moment in, in time, that we could be raptured in five seconds from now. It could happen at, at any time. According to the post-tribulation uh, view, it can't happen at any time because they're waiting for the tribulation. They're waiting for the unveiling of the Antichrist, the first of, of, of the seven seals. Jesus could not come back today according to that teaching. So what do we do with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, which uh, you have no need that I should write to you, but you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. And then he goes on to speak about us watching and being sober. There's no need to be watching and waiting for the Lord's return under the post-tribulation view. We're waiting instead for the Antichrist and for the great tribulation. Paul wrote uh, again in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and to wait for his son, not the Antichrist, not the great tribulation, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Even in Paul's day, they were looking for the rapture of the church, looking for Jesus Christ to return, not looking for the Antichrist or the great, great tribulation. This is how the rapture is handled all the way through 1 Thessalonians as an imminent event. It could happen at any time. Jesus said, But of that day and that hour no one knows, no, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as, it, as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. And so also will the coming of the Son of Man uh, be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Now hold on to that in your minds uh, if you've got any room left. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 25 uh, concerning the, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, 12 virgins with their lamps. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise, five were foolish. And those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. 
And while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. And all the virgins arose, and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered and said, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. And afterward the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he answered, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus' commentary on all of this was, Watch therefore, for you do you know neither the the day nor the hour when the Son of Man is coming. And to me, the post-tribulation view makes this exhortation of Jesus to be vain. And, and you notice in, in Matthew chapter 24, verse uh, 30, uh, 36, the time of the rapture is clearly unknown to man. But of that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only, Jesus said. Notice, too, that in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, that the rapture of the church is clearly pictured as imminent or impending. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Now, I say all of that now to say this. That creates a problem for the post-tribulation position because the post-tribulation position views the rapture as occurring at the same time as Jesus' second coming. But the angel of the Lord speaks to Daniel in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11. And he said, from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, the abomination of desolation is set up. When the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped at the three and a half year mark of the seven year tribulation, the angel declared, there shall be 1,290 days. In other words, for the final 1,290 days prior to the second coming, the whole world that knows its Bible will know the day of, of the second coming. You could count it down. The abomination of desolation occurred. It was right there in the Jerusalem Post, 1,290 days. We know the day that the Lord is returning. So it is impossible for the rapture to occur at the second coming because you would know the day. The date has, has been given to us, dated from an event uh, during the Great Tribulation uh, period. So only the pre-tribulation rapture allows for the rapture to be an imminent daily expectation. In the passage uh, before us here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16, 16 through 18, this is a passage that is clearly intended to comfort us related to the Great Tribulation and to, to comfort us uh, with the rapture of the church. And, and, and I fail to see how the idea that I am going to go through the Great Tribulation and that the Lord is going to come to me and He's going to snatch me out of the world once the Great Tribulation is over when there's nothing left to rescue me from uh, can constitute a, a comfort uh, to me. And, and so how could going through the, the tribulation be a comfort? Number six, notice that in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4, we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's altogether different from the second coming. The second coming, he comes all the way back down to the earth. And uh, the rapture, we go up to meet him in the air, go into heaven, then return with him at the second coming. A post-tribulation uh, rapture view doesn't make uh, any sense to me if it happens at the time of the second coming, which uh, uh, doesn't demonstrate a need for, uh, because if it happens at the second coming, there won't be a need for what the Bible talks about later as a separating between the goats and the sheep. That will already have occurred at the time of the rapture if it's a simultaneous event with the second uh, coming. And then finally, since the rapture is the uniting of the groom, Jesus, 
with his bride, the church, a pre-tribulation rapture is the only one that matches the Jewish wedding progression. And it is in that context, a Jewish context, that Jesus and the, and the writers here write these things out in the, in the way that a Jewish listener would have understood all the imagery. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, and he said, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you, speaking to us as the body of Christ, to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. In the Jewish wedding progression, there were four basic steps. First, there was the betrothal, which involved three events. The prospective groom would travel from his father's house to the house of the prospective bride. What he would do when he arrived there is he would pay the price, the purchase price, for his bride. In paying the purchase price for his bride, he established the wedding covenant or commitment. Jesus did these things in relationship to the church, the bride of Christ. When he left his father's house to come to this earth, and then with his own blood purchased, paid the price, the purchase price for his bride. And as a result of that, we have been betrothed to him as a chaste virgin, as his bride. Now, second, the groom would then return to his father's house in a Jewish wedding progression. And there he would remain separate from his bride for an extended period of time, typically for a, a year, 12 months. And during that time he was away from his bride, he would prepare the living accommodations for he and his bride at his father's house. He would build on to his father's house for his coming family. That's why Jesus spoke, and that's what he's doing right now. And he spoke in John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. It is completely Jewish imagery. I am going back to heaven to prepare heaven for you, and when it's prepared, I will be back for you. Third, the groom would then, when uh, the house is prepared, would then return for his bride, but not at a time that she would know. And, and uh, uh, so she wouldn't know quite when he was going to come. She would know that he's coming. And sometimes, and, and, and most times, the groom did not know himself when he would go to take his bride. He would go to get his bride when his father determined that heaven had been prepared adequately for the introduction of a bride now into this family and into this house. And that's why Jesus declared, again, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus will rise up out of that throne, come to get his bride under the orders or the direction of the Father. And, and thus, the bride always had to be ready, had to be watching and waiting since the groom could show up at any time, keep the oil in her lamp in case he, he came at, at night. And, of course, that's the imagery for us. We're watching and waiting, filled with the Holy Spirit while he, we're waiting for his return. And then finally, the groom would then come and take his betrothed and return with her to his father's house to consummate the marriage and then to celebrate the marriage feast. And the wedding feast or the marriage feast would last seven days. It corresponds wonderfully with a seven-year tribulation period during which the bride would remain hidden and closeted in her bridal chamber. Heaven is going to be our bridal chamber when we go to be with the Lord. After the seven days, she is then brought forth with her husband into a public place now. 
And that occurs at the second coming. And, and so uh, here is the Revelation chapter 19 speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's completed. And then at the second coming, the reason that bring, Jesus brings his church with him is its imagery from the Jewish wedding. The groom would always present himself publicly now with his bride, and that's why we come back with him at the second coming. All of it fits perfectly. The pre-tribulation rapture, all of that fits perfectly with the Jewish uh, imagery. So I believe that the rapture of the church occurs there in Revelation 4, 1 and 2, somewhere thereabouts in, in all of that, and it's a great comfort to my heart that my groom is coming, you know, and uh, could be tonight, like my friend Larry Anderson was always so faithful to remind me, and I remind us tonight, he's coming. All of it is a picture, not of this, and it's getting worse and worse and all of that, though it is getting worse and worse and all of that. The big neon sign for all of us as Christians is that the groom is coming. The groom is coming. Let's be ready and let's comfort one another in the knowledge that the groom is coming in the midst of, of all of this and that it might be tonight. And what a comfort that is, that tonight before we even get to the cars, fight with one another to get out of the parking lot, they could snatch us up and get us out of here. I really want this church to be empty uh, the week after the rapture of the church. <laughs> Completely empty except for people coming to scrounge around for your Bibles and figure out what in the world happened to you. Isn't it wonderful, the comfort and the hope that we have in the rapture of the church? It is the heart of a groom. He anticipates. He is, is excited about that event as we are. And it is a very real part of our future. Praise the Lord the comfort of the Word of God. Let's stand together. If the worship team will come forward, we'll dismiss. Hey, thanks for being so patient tonight on things. That's a ton of information. Took me about uh, 25 years to learn it and uh, delivered it to you in only uh, four hours. So uh, that's, that's great. But sometimes, you know, you get lost in this somewhere, and the whole thing is like, oh, come on, give me help. Somebody stop this man. And, uh, but uh, one of the great things is it ends up on tape and can be tearing it slowly. Little by little, these things un unfold. And, and uh, so let's pray now. Lord, thank you so much for your heart for us. And, we, we look at you, we look at your holiness, we look at how righteous, we, we see it, we, we understand that your judgment is, is needed, it will be just when it does occur, but uh, we're so thankful for this season that we have of grace and the privilege of being able to repent and to turn to you and to escape all of this, Lord. And we know that the world is filled with people yet or we wouldn't be here any longer, that is just like I was before 1980, all goofed up and in the dark and messed up and still not quite ready to surrender to you and then, you know, got it figured out and came to you. And, and so, Lord, lead us by your Holy Spirit in, in this hour in human history to keep telling people about your love and the hope that is found in you, Lord, even in the midst of all of the chaos of this world. Give us sensitivity to your Holy Spirit this week and all of it. Thank you for the privilege of being your bride. How we love you as our groom, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We praise you. We praise you in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.